0: That's the first step, as as near as I can tell after having done a lot of uh, soul searching on this question. You have to be able to think about your own thinking. This is the single attribute that separates us from every other life form. Yeah. Right? We can think about our thinking, and then we can uh, uh, reprogram, recode, right? Take pain to change. I mean, for almost all of us, pain mm-hmm. breaks us out of our complacency. And that's what it was for me. It was a moment where it's like, I don't care what is on the other side of my comfort zone. I'm not shooting someone. Yeah, I know. I'll do anything. I will leap blindly into the dark because I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. So you get there and that's the start. So culture is a very good thing and potentially a very, very destructive thing. So you have to sort of, it's like, it's like you're between two two skyscrapers on a tightrope. You know what I mean? On the one hand, yeah, we need culture, we need community, absolutely. On the other hand, you can't ever get complacent because the stories just sort of sweep in around you.
1: And that is coming up next on Bootstrapping Your Dream Show, so stay tuned. So the big question is this, how are ambitious people like us who don't have a lot of resources, did not go to Ivy League colleges, were not born into wealth, how do we become resourceful enough, use our creativity, our dedication, and a little bit of crazy to bootstrap our way to realizing our dreams, whether it is launching a new company, launching a new app, or making it to the top of the corporate ladder. That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. We have created a tremendous community of bootstrappers, entrepreneurs, and professionals who are ambitious, resourceful, and want to get things done. We brainstorm, support, and help each other out. So come join us. Navigate to bootstrapping.group, join today, and get the Startup Founders Technology Accelerator video series absolutely free. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Bootstrapping Your Dreams Show. I'm your host, Manoj Agarwal, and today we'll be talking with Manny Wolf. So Manny found himself living with a hooker, buying and selling drugs, and slowly rotting. Born in a hippie commune in Berkeley, California, during the notorious summer of love, Manny's childhood was marked with uh, violence, brainwashing, drug abuse, and worst of all, no guidance. Drifting from place to place, job to job, unable to settle, living a life steadily, becoming utterly out of control, he ended up hopeless, homeless, deadbeat, addicted to drink and drugs, on a dizzying downward spiral, smashing down to rock bottom, Uh, Manny was able to craft his life around. This story is nothing less than a testament to what can be achieved with the power of self-belief to create a better future. Awesome, Uh, Manny, this is so inspirational. Your story uh, is so touching, so inspirational. Uh, Welcome to our show. I'd love Mm -hmm. to know um, how this unfolded, what happened, can you tell uh, tell us a little bit about your early years? Yeah, take us down the memory lane.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. Well, first of all, thank you, thank you for having me on the show. Um, it's it's a little it's a little hard to know where to start, you know. Even though everybody wants to hear the story, um, because I'm so different now. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'll start with this. <clears throat> I'll start with sort of just a positive message for people that um, we we misconceive what it means to be able to change ourselves. Mm -hmm. We have a misunderstanding of that. Uh, Most people tend to think in terms of, wow, if I could change 10%, 20%, 30%, that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, Complete, global, radical, cellular change is possible. So I just really like, you know, I like to be an example of that. And I love it when people look at me and go, I can't even imagine you doing those things. Mm -hmm. That's like the best compliment you can give me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, you know, it all started, I was I was born into what is officially designated as a new age cult. Mm -hmm. And I was the first child born into that cult. And obviously, being brand new to the world, I didn't know that my father already had quite a reputation. He, um, and so I was simultaneously put up on a pedestal as the first child born into the cult. And, uh, and that was why I was given my name Emmanuel, you know, they, they really treated me on one hand, like I was like God himself coming in <laughs> to, to do all the I don't know what at the same time though, there was, uh a massive reservoir of unspoken and unaddressed resentment against my father. And so from the very beginning of my life, I had these two forces working at me. One of them was this force of, you're destined for big things. The other was this force of, nobody trusts you. And it just really kind of set at a DNA level, at a nervous system level, it set some reactions and behaviors and ways of perceiving the world into my into my psyche into myself that really wound up you know steering my my feelings my decisions my actions for well i guess for about 35 years so yeah and and i say 35 years it was only right around 35 to 40 years that i started to really extricate myself from that conditioning
1: okay. Okay. well that's um i can relate to that because i've had uh, similar experiences in my life but tell me what was the trigger point at 35 like what changed for you where you decided okay you know this is enough i need to mm-hmm. i need to pick a different path
0: well it didn't happen at 35 it happened closer to 28 um, and what happened was i found myself having just been released from jail I was homeless when I got arrested. Um, I didn't know while I was incarcerated that I made the papers, I see. and the papers grossly misrepresented what happened and literally positioned me as if I were some drug kingpin. Oh wow! When in reality, I was the most small time of drug dealers. Okay. Uh, still to this day, I don't really know why they did that. I think it was a scare tactic. Or I think it was to appease the sheriffs. The place I lived, the county I lived in, was really, really cracking down on methamphetamine at that time because it had become rampant, yeah, yeah. you know, and it was threatening to to really destabilize a nice college town. Yeah. So um, I guess I mean and these are all just assumptions. I don't know why they did that. I don't know why they would grossly misrepresent the arrest of a of a, a basically a nobody, you know, and position it like that. But what happened was all of my friends thought that because everybody who, uh, you know, if you do a lot of methamphetamine, you get very paranoid. So everybody thought that I had snitched on them. (laughs) And I can't stress this enough. I was just some kid who got arrested with a little bit of drugs, you know, it's like happens every day. And, um, and so I got let out after about, I don't know, 25 days or something, a month, something like that. And I went back to the places where my friends had been storing my possessions. Because remember, I was homeless. I didn't have a place to go. And every time I would knock on a door, people would look at me like, uh, like I came back from the dead. You know, they expected me to be gone for five, six, seven years. It was really, really crazy. So I didn't know what was happening. And in trying to get to the bottom of that, I discovered that uh, one guy had gone around to all my friends. This was according to them. I never confirmed it with the guy um, and stolen all my things, taken all my possessions from me. So I literally, at that point, I know what it's like to have nothing, nothing but the clothes on my back. Nothing. Well, that and friends, a few friends who still. So I, I. Did the only thing I knew how to do. I tried to get to the bottom of it, and when I found out who it was, I really got upset because um you know there are a lot of people in the world who like to pretend and claim and posture like they're genuine badasses and then there are a few people who really are, mm-hmm. and I still to this day contend that the guy who took all my stuff is one of the ones who really is or really was i haven't you know, uh, as you'll learn, I disappeared from that whole life. But what happened was I was faced with this idea that even if I was to confront this guy, even if we were to fight, A, I'd never get my things back and B, it would never be over with him. If he lost, he'd come back. If he won, he would just, you know, he would just harass me forever. I didn't know what to do. And in my processing, Uh, Word got to some of my other friends who were also equally dangerous, and they made it a matter of pride that we would go and hunt down and shoot this guy. So I found myself standing outside of a cheap apartment on a cold night, holding an untraceable handgun and literally making plans. By the way, premeditated, far worse than an act of passion literally making plans to hunt down and attempt to shoot this man. And I knew in that moment, I didn't show it externally, but I knew like, I'm going to disappear. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to even attempt to shoot someone because they stole my stuff, Mm -hmm. you know? And so what happened was I, uh, I managed to have the guy that was bringing me the gun, agree to meet me back there at midnight. So I bought myself about three hours, and in those three hours, I vanished. Okay, gone. I got on the phone as fast as I could. I started calling everyone I thought still trusted me, and within an hour, I was in the back of a car with two girls I had never met who were driving from Northern California. And if you're not, if you don't know California, it's huge, mm-hmm. it's enormous. It's it's tip to tip, I think it's equivalent to the UK. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm driving from Northern California to my mother's house, which is on their way to Southern California. I didn't know them. I had no idea who they were. And uh, that was it. But here's the thing. And this is what's so interesting. People tend to think we want to romanticize that moment. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah. But that moment is only the moment where the work starts. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. It was easily a decade. Before I had made any real sort of like progress into understanding how I could have come to that point in the first place. Easily a decade of hard, hard spiritual toil and labor. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's amazing. So, uh, you know, this is, this is the stuff I really want to get into. Because a lot of people, you know, they, you know, life is tough. Let's face it. Um, in most cases, you know, it's not smooth. And a lot of people use uh, all the obstacles, all the challenges that life throws at us as an excuse to, um, you know, to, uh, to do things that, not, that it's not their character, right? Like, uh, you know, as you put it, like, you know, um, planning to kill a person or, or doing drugs and things like that. Obviously, that was not in your character, but, you know, it, it circumstances were such that you got into that. But a lot of you, you ultimately got out of that because of your own thinking. And that's what I want to really get into because a lot of people, they, they sort of give up um, and, and, these challenges, these people face are not even huge challenges. It could be something like, Hey, I'm not getting promotion in my job or, you know, my, um, my startup is not working. I'm not getting enough sales and, and they give up. So how do you pick yourself up from, you know, such a low point and say to yourself, okay, you know, there's another way I'm going to, I'm going to take another way. Well, as
0: you might, as you might expect, I get asked that question a lot, Mm -hmm. given it a lot of thought, because I really want to be able to answer that question in a meaningful way for people. Mm. Um, And when I first started getting asked that question, I think my answers were a little bit, not on purpose, but a little bit glib. You know, and I would say you you simply have to be able to pick yourself up one more time than you fall. Mm. But I don't think that's, tangible enough for people. So what I think is this, I think that we're, we're all of us enculturated into a greater society. Now your, your family may be different, but probably not, but the larger society tends to teach us not to be accountable for ourselves. It tends to Uh, look for scapegoats and bad guys and external excuses and and things of that nature. And it's very subtle. So what I would say is you have to know that a lot of the messaging you're receiving, possibly from your own family and circle, but certainly from the media and social media and other people's stories, is this this story that fundamentally puts you in the place of (coughs) excuse me, choosing to be a victim. And here's the catch without ever realizing that you're choosing to be a victim.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Everybody sits around on the weekend and has a couple beers and complains about their boss, complains about the tax man, complains about the government, complains about this, complains about that guys, girls, that's all victim. Think all of it. 100%. And so the first thing that you have to do, I think is you have to have the ability to to apply critical thinking to your own situation. Now, as soon as I get into this, I feel like most people aren't going to want to hear this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, I think, uh, I think our audience will like to hear this. I think our audience you know. will like to hear it. But so you've got to be able to think about your thinking. That's the first step as, as near as I can tell after having done a lot of uh, soul searching on this question. You have to be able to think about your own thinking. This is the single attribute that separates us from every other life form. Yeah. Right. We can think about our thinking and then we can uh, uh, reprogram, recode. Right? That's right. That's right. Most of us don't. Many of us don't believe it's possible. We're so entrenched in what is The oversimplification is calling it victim mentality, but that term has been used so much that we don't even know what it means anymore. Mm -hmm. So let me say this, and this is from Stephen Covey. Every time you think the problem is something outside of yourself, that thought is the problem. Every time you think that the problem is something outside of you, the thought that tells you that is the problem. People get very caught up with this. This gets very slippery for people because our tendency is to see ourselves as separate. But we're really not. I can tell you that I lived in a mindset that was 100% victim, 100% problems out there, 100% me surviving against the world. And I can also tell you that I have changed it completely. I've changed it 100%. Good, bad, or ugly, it's all about my interpretation. It's all about my choices. It's all about what I do. I cannot control the circumstances and the stimuli, but I can control how I react to it. If you can't latch on to that, the likelihood of you ever getting out of whatever you're in that you don't like is very, very small. So as far as I can tell, that's the nucleus of change. Yeah, that's the most that's indivisible, indivisible particle, right, of, of how we start to affect change in our lives.
1: Yeah, that's so true. I mean, uh, working on yourself and becoming more self-aware and actually being, you know, accepting and, and at the same time accepting and um, not judging yourself uh, and then working your way from there is, is the right thing to do. But Yeah. So, so congratulations, first of all, that you were able to transform your life. Uh, not a lot of people are able to do that. Um, now, once you made that decision, can you share any, any specific steps, any tactics, any strategies you use to actually, you know, move yourself from a state of victimhood to a state of ownership of your own life? Like, did, what, what steps did you take? Like, any, any practical um, examples you can share with the audience?
0: <clears throat> so the first thing I think it, it's important for people to understand is that the, the personal growth journey, the the trajectory of change is more like um, it's more like a Moore's law curve.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. It It isn't. I want to encourage you guys that it isn't always brutal and hard. And you, in fact, this is something that I I'd like to. I'd like people to be more aware of in the beginning. It really does take pain to change. I mean, for almost all of us, pain mm-hmm. breaks us out of our complacency. And that's what it was for me. It was a moment where it's like, I don't care what is on the other side of my comfort zone. I'm not shooting someone. Yeah, yeah. I'll do anything. I will leap blindly into the dark because I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. So you get there and that's the start. And then you you really fight for the first, you know, pieces of change that you get. But here's something that I hope encourages people. You can get yourself to a point where you decide consciously, proactively, and as the sort of um, uh, the sovereign author of your own thought process and emotions, you can get to the point where you say, (laughs) I'm going to look for how to change before the pain comes. Mm-hmm. right? And so that's, that's a very important piece. Now, I don't know how much of a strategic tactic that is, but that's been the biggest accelerator of change and growth and development in my life has been, okay, I know what it feels like to, to feel a lot of pain and then change. I really don't like it. <clears throat> mm-hmm. What if I became willing to trust the voices, the the insight, the advice of those who had come before me.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Right. So maybe that's the maybe that's the tactic, is to start again, but you know, mentally proactive, uh, to start to recognize that we're sort of hardwired. Our, our default is to not change until the pain comes. Yeah, yeah. And and make a choice to seek out change that you want rather than waiting until the pain gets so bad that you you're forced to do something
1: yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, way to put it um, now uh, let me try to be a devil's advocate and and ask this question that may arise in uh, you know in my it's uh, coming to my mind and i'm sure a lot of people may be thinking um, and i i don't want to sound harsh but do you think this was an advantage that you sort of saw the rock bottom and now you know what the worst can happen and you you can now like if, if God forbid, if something like that were to happen in your life again, you will be more confident in taking the leap of faith into the dark again, rather than uh, some other people who have not experienced such hardship and they get sort of, uh, they, they become an obstacle in their own path because yeah. now they don't want to lose whatever they have yeah. and, and, and you they cannot take the next step and they cannot leap uh, into the unknown just because you know they are afraid.
0: Yeah. um, I'm not sure that's as much playing the devil's advocate as it is just asking a thoughtful question. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So my, my answer is um, I set out to make myself comfortable with discomfort. Mm -hmm. I don't know who I first heard say that it might've been Earl Nightingale. It might've been Tony Robbins. It was, it was one of the personal improvement giants and it really just hit me the right way at the right time, and so I set out to become that. Um, in my experience, that's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it makes you very resilient. On the other hand, if you're not careful, you can sort of set yourself into a feedback loop of only seeking those kind of experiences. Yeah. yeah. So, so everything is about sort of like getting rid of all those tendencies our mind and emotion has and emotions have to create those sort of autopilot ways of going through life. Now, to your direct question, um, I have had many, many times in 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 the life I've had since leaving that old life where I've hit lots of rock bottoms. I do think that for most of us, rock bottom is a valuable, valuable experience. You know, I, I really do. Um, yeah. Don't don't kind of tell me how tough you are and how successful you are and everything like that until you really know what it's like. Until you really know what it's like to feel like I'm I'm willing to die rather than stay in whatever this is. And I don't care what I have to do until you've really bottomed out. Now here's the good news. Now I spent a lot of time in in um AA and NA early on. And what I saw there was that different people have different sort of levels of intensity to their rock bottom. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that I'm now seeing kids in their early 20s who have the same awarenesses and the same sort of intellectual capacity that it took me 40 years to develop, mm-hmm. I think that the more people, make profound change from a, a less intense rock bottom, the more we sort of imbue the collective consciousness, the collective awareness with that and kind of raise the game generationally. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Of course. Of course. Yeah. My mentors, both of my mentors are under 30 wow. and they're both spiritual. They're both like well-rounded. They're both eight multi eight figure entrepreneurs. And it, It's funny because at first when I first met the guy who I wound up getting mentored by, I didn't even trust him Mm -hmm. because he was like 26 at the time. And I thought he was another slick internet, social media, BS artist. Ironically, it turns out he's got the most integrity of anyone I've ever, I've ever come across in the space. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I think I'm seeing in an answer to your question, is that yes, rock bottom is important. I I don't think that without a real come-to-Jesus, slap-in-the-face, foundation-shaking, aha moment, uh, most people are willing to plow through what it takes to change. However, what I am seeing is that it's happening with less and less sort of need for that desperate intensity and into younger and younger people. So being optimistic about humans, I feel like what I'm seeing is evolution, evolution of the species, you know? Uh,
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so true. And I think um, this is where I think the, the social media and and internet, uh, the information exchange that happens, is, is actually creating this positive effect that, uh, you know, whereas earlier we used to have to dig, uh, ourselves to find these type of paradigms and learn from people. Um, and now, you know, uh, organically this information is reaching people. So mm-hmm. I think that has some effect, which is on the positive side. Yeah. Um, but, but you never know, but let me talk about spirituality here because you brought it up a couple of times and, you know, it, it has played a huge role in my life because I have sure. experienced, uh. Uh, real low in my life and uh, you know um, if anything really helped me to turn my life around it was spirituality and meditation so what has been your experience in this realm um, of spirituality
0: you mean what does my spirituality look like
1: yeah and how has it helped you and you know what like uh, first of all let's address one basic question because this is uh, one thing people get confused about what do you think about religion and spirituality? Because in my opinion, they are separate. But what do you think? Well, I,
0: I think they both have good case studies <laughs> and bad case studies. <laughs> you know, so let me be clear. I'm not dogmatic at all. Um In, in fact, I, I see a lot of entrepreneurs and, and tech Techie people say that they're tool agnostic. I'm philosophy agnostic. I'll take whatever the hell works.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, my bottom line is I trust my, my motives and my desires, right? I don't have any of that. Like for instance, Ooh, if I got $10 million tomorrow, would I turn evil? Like I just don't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm just so done with that. And so I trust who I'm becoming and who I essentially am and I'll use any tool that helps me to get there. Right. And so uh, I draw a lot from Confucianism, Taoism um, and Zen. I really like those. Um, I draw a little bit from Christianity because to me, that's the most dogmatic. Mm -hmm. That's where that's where I personally experience the most kind of entrenchment of thinking and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I tend to tiptoe around it. I think spirituality and religion are different, but but intersect. Yeah, yeah. I think at their best, both of them help us to live uh, really, really good lives. You know, and at their worst, obviously, just just the the worst that humanity has to offer. Yeah. Quite frankly, and so um, to me, any spiritual idea or tool or philosophy or discipline that helps me be more self accountable. Helps me know that I'm not taking from the world. Helps me know that you know that I'm sort of in alignment with the things that are important to me, and those things are thoroughly vetted by me. I don't have to second guess them anymore. Uh, I don't need some guru to come in from outside and and talk to me about you know my my connection or alignment or my values or any of that stuff. Like I'm good, um, and so anything that helps propel me along that path is okay with me.
1: Cool. That's great. And uh, now let's uh, move a little bit forward. Um, How did you uh, go from that place and sort of, you know, um, figured out what your next uh, life is going to be like? I'm talking about your current profession, Mm -hmm. which is about branding, storytelling.
0: Right, Right.
1: How did you, how did you uncover that? How did you,
0: Actually, polish it up and bring it to the world? Uh, At the risk of sounding cliche, I owe that all to my wife. (laughs) So, when we met, I was still working in construction. I was painting houses and running a house painting crew. And the first thing she said to me was, You're not a house painter. What are you doing painting houses? And, uh, And I honestly, I didn't know what she meant, you know. And I had over time developed a very uh, kind of intuitive approach to showing off by using the stories from my past, God. you know, and so I remember one day when she and I were still new in our courtship and I'm trying to impress her with one of these just grisly stories from my past and where other girls would be impressed and then sort of give me attention. She just looked at me and she said, you have to write this down. I see. She just, she just, we were driving and she said, you have to write a book. You have to, you have to do this. And I was like, Oh, well, I always thought I would, but I thought I, I needed to wait till I was successful. Mm -hmm. And she said, from where you came from, just for you to be here, to be contributing to society, trying to be a good father, all of these things that is success. I, I didn't have anything left to say. I had no defense. I went home that night and started writing the book. Um, Finished it about eight months later, and then it sat on the shelf for a long time as I figured out, what do you do next if you're an unknown author, you know? And I, I somehow scored a call with one of the, uh, the, the head publishers or bigwigs at Penguin Publishing. He gave me a 10-minute call, <clears throat> and what he said was, you got to build a platform. Okay. And I said, what does that mean? <laughs> and he said, well, right now, podcasts are probably the hottest way to do it. So I said okay, and I started to learn about podcasts, and I started a podcast, and um, that's that was my introduction to the online space. And so I'm networking, and I'm making friends, and doing all these things, but nobody's buying anything from me. I released my podcast, which was a podcast about people's you know um, struggles and adversity and overcoming, and nobody cared. <laughs> but I did start getting people reaching out to me saying, can you teach me how to sound like you? I see, I see. So it was totally random. Naturally, I said, yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I'll never forget landing my first client online, $397 for a month of voice coaching. Nice. nice. That's where it started.
1: That's awesome. That's yeah. Great. Um, all right. Uh, now, uh, I also know you are, uh, you know, you, you talk about, culture a lot. Um, So can you share with us what are your views on culture and what kind of importance it plays in our society?
0: Well, culture and society are the same in my mind, for for starters. Um, And you're right, I do talk about that a lot, especially lately. Mm -hmm. So a culture is nothing more, really, than a way to feel connected to or part of a group. This is very important for entrepreneurial people to understand because we're always outliers, but there are enough of us now and social media has allowed us all to connect so that we have our own culture. Mm -hmm. And what you usually hear me talking about with culture is railing against all the absurd narratives about money that exist in a culture of people whose stated goal is huge impact, (laughs) right? Let me be clear you're not going to make huge impact without money being a part of it. It's just not going to happen unless you want to be a martyr, or you want to like, you know, take a high powered rifle and and shoot into a crowd or something unthinkable like that. You're not going to do lots of impact without lots of money. And so one of the things that, that I feel very sort of like I've moved all the way through it was absolutely destructive money conditioning. That was one of the main things in the cult I was born in was this just, I mean, you might as well have strapped TNT to my back and lit the fuse with the money ideas they gave me. It was utterly self-destructive. And so I wrestled with it, and I wrestled with it, and I wrestled with it, and I tried to understand it and undo it and undo it just for decades. And here's the trap, guys, so listen up. Many of you hearing this may already be done processing your dysfunctional money stories but because the culture suggests that we keep examining, you get caught in what I call entrepreneurial navel-gazing. Where instead of just saying I'm done with it and making new choices in this moment moving forward, you keep looking over your shoulder into the past. But the catch is that as soon as we look over our shoulder into the past, we bring the past into the present. Yeah. So we keep making what was real, real again. The reason we do that. Or the thing to understand about that and how it relates to culture is this. Again, a culture is nothing more than a set of narratives that everyone agrees upon so that they can feel a sense of fraternity with each other. In other words, we subconsciously agree to these stories so we can feel like a group. Mm. Never underestimate the pull of feeling like you're part of a group. It is absolutely primal. We're pack animals. So. Here's the catch. Here's what we have to do, right? First of all, you have to be willing to go out in the cold by yourself. doesn't necessarily mean you will, but you have to be willing. And you have to be willing to examine your own thinking and beliefs. Because what happens is when we become part of a culture, we sign on to the stories of that culture without ever consciously acknowledging it. And the money story, especially in the entrepreneurial culture, is I mean, you might as well say, okay, I've built this beautiful statue. Now I'm just going to stick a firecracker in a hole in its leg. Mm -hmm. Because the money stories are absolutely cancerous. They're absolutely destructive. And so the thing about culture is that culture is a collection of agreed upon narratives. And if you go into it without ever being aware of that or questioning those, you start to look and sound like those narratives. The problem with that is that literally shapes your reality. Mm -hmm. What we agree upon as stories shape our world. Like That's our reality. And the more we stay in the culture, in the group, the more we reinforce at a nervous system, cellular level, that this is what we believe. The more we feel like that's what we believe, the more we see it because our mind is rigged (laughs) to find what we expect to see. And so culture is a very good thing and potentially a very, very destructive thing. So you have to sort of, it's like, it's like you're between two, two skyscrapers on a tightrope. You know what I mean? On the one hand, yeah, we need culture. We need community. Absolutely. On the other hand, you can't ever get complacent because the stories just sort of sweep in around you.
1: Yeah. That's so true. That's so true. And that's why they say, you know, um, you make sure that you're surrounded by good people and and the definition of good people is very subjective.
0: Yes, it is. But watch your circle. You know, your circle should be, in my opinion, people who you can uplift and people who are ahead of you that challenge you and make you rise up. Right. That's what you want, but you don't like, like my whole blood family, even though they were born and raised in the same environment I was, became very conservative in their thinking. Now, this is interesting, right? They became conservative within this bubble of highly sort of um, um, uh, non-conservative thought. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Because, you know, the, the cult that I was born into was not conservative thinking. It was radically new age hippie thinking. But it doesn't matter what kind of thinking it is, if it's sort of, if you get trapped in the dogma of it, right, then you become conservative in the sense that you're not looking past the assumptions of the culture. And my family, I'll never forget my youngest brother turning to me. I got a raise when I was painting for someone else from $16 an hour to $18 an hour. I had It was a huge accomplishment for me at that time. And my brother turns to me and says, with disdain, he says, what do you need to make that much money for? Well, I live in California and I will tell you $18 an hour in California, it's barely getting by. But that's my whole family's thought process and thinking. They don't think expand, grow, challenge, push. They think shrink everything down to what you have now. Your dreams, your vision, your soul shrink it down to what you can now do right that's the culture that's the stories that they all agree to
1: well i mean uh this has been really uh interesting conversation very deep uh, and inspiring conversation so thanks a lot for coming onto the show and uh sharing this uh this life story with us and sharing a lot of uh valuable insights and how people can uplift themselves and Mm -hmm. how they can conduct themselves to uh, achieve whatever they're trying to achieve. So thanks a lot for that.
0: You're very Um, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Now, before I let you go, can you tell us how people can reach out to you?
0: Of course. Yeah. Um, So you can find me at Manny Wolf's group on Facebook. That's really the best place to come and find me. My last name is spelled with an E W O L F E. You can just find me at Manny Wolf's group. Uh, When you come in and you answer the questions, be sure to tell me that you heard about me from this podcast. Be sure to identify that so that uh, I can tell Manoj how great he's doing.
1: (laughs) Awesome. That's great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And that's all for now. Until next time. Now, if you're an entrepreneur or a career professional, then I invite you to join our growing community. Navigate to bootstrapping.group. As a welcome bonus, you will get the Startup Founders Technology Accelerator video series and Mastering Your Inner Game video series absolutely free. This series of short videos address some core issues which are instrumental in helping you move forward in your business or career. The videos are yours to view and share for free. No obligations or strings attached, except for one. You have to take action and implement it. So join us today. Navigate to bootstrapping.group. If you want more engaging videos and insightful interviews with industry's thought leaders, then check out the other videos we have picked for you. The link is right there. And if you want to be notified about our new content, please do consider subscribing to our channel.